Hello, my name is Steve Brown, and I'm the worship leader at Vintage Faith Church. At Vintage Faith, we believe the Word of God is what changes and transforms a person. We hope you enjoy the next 30 to 40 minute sermon of the Word of God being proclaimed and explained. Enjoy the message. Good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise your name. We praise the fact that we know that the promise has been fulfilled in in part, that you have come, and that's why we celebrate Christmas. But as we sung about the rugged cross, you had come to, to die. Lord, you had come as a sacrifice. And Lord, we look during this Christmas time, this week, forward as well to your second coming. In your word, you say that the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Lord, that light is you. God, we just ask that you stir us with hope as we enter this week where Christmas presents are being bought and we can easily get sucked into the commercialism and all of the excesses of the season. Help us to center our hearts on you. God, as we wrap up this series in Genesis, help us to make connections that we may have never made. Help us to see you for who you are. Help us to see the unity of the scriptures in a way that we may have never seen before. God, we we love you. We're your people. We come here before you to worship you. That's what we're doing to sing to you, to praise you, to hear from you, to be built up as the people of God. We are called out as your people, different from the world. Lord, help us to take hold of that calling. Help us to see that calling and to embrace it with everything we have. Pray this in your name. Amen. So as you know, we have been in the book of Genesis, and and there's been a lot of talk about this is a, it's a polemic. This is um, God speaking to the people in the time of Moses' day and saying, no, the world is not like you've been hearing how it is. The world is like this. And this book still speaks as a polemic to us today. And, and again, by polemic, I mean argument. It's an argument. It's, it's actually attacking, in a sense, it's setting a foundation, but it's attacking all other worldviews that are 
drowning us out and that we're hearing from, from everywhere in the schools, in the media, everywhere. We're hearing what the world, the, the reason the world is the way it is, what the world is about, and Genesis comes in like a lightning bolt and says, no, it is not like that. We all know in, in this room that happiness in, in the purest form it's elusive. We all chase it, but none of us have it. Every one of you in this room, you know what it is to be weary and sad and anxious, depressed, disappointed. For those of you who are a little older, that probably resonates much more than the younger crew in this room, but you will experience it if you haven't. Pain multiplies as you get older, physically and emotionally, pain multiplies. Human, humanity is restless. We are restless creatures. And we've been talking about in the last three months how the Bible speaks to this restlessness. It speaks to it in a way that no other philosophy or book or religion can. It speaks to the deepest needs of the human heart, the deepest pain. It speaks. And that's because it's the very word of God. So to take you back through where, where we have been, in the beginning, God, we started. In the beginning, God, it all starts there. Every other philosophy that you will ever hear starts with you and me. But the Bible starts with God. In the beginning, God in darkness was over the face of the deep, and God said, by his word, by the power of his word, let there be light. And there was. There was light. And we went through Genesis and we saw how God is just meticulously ordering creation. Everything has a purpose. He separated this from that. He made it this kind and that kind. Very meticulous. Everything is imbued and infused with purpose. Everything. The worldview of our day says it's all an accident. And the Bible speaks another word. He creates men and women and he, he, he puts his image in them. They are made in his image and likeness. You and I, in all of humanity, whether they know God or not, are made in the image of God. Therefore, people have dignity and worth. And we saw how the serpent came along and by power of suggestion and manipulation, got Adam and Eve thinking, well, maybe God isn't good. Maybe he's not as good as we think he is. He's actually withholding this one fruit from us, this one tree he's withholding. So they take and eat. Adam and Eve say, 
essentially, I know you've given us this garden, this paradise, but we want it all. I want that tree too. And in their desire to have it all, they get none of it. And we see that they're exiled out of the garden. And immediately we see the first murder, Cain kills Abel. And then we see humanity descend into utter corruption. And God finally says, enough. And he saves Noah and his family through the waters of judgment. But then Noah kicks it off and he's no, no different. He finds himself drunk in a garden, naked, ashamed. There's a rollout of another curse. And then again, we see humanity denying the word of God. When God says, spread out, fill the earth, multiply, we see them all in one place. Tower of Babel saying, hey, we don't care about your name, God. We want to make a name for ourselves. And we see another judgment on those people as God scatters them and confuses the language. That brings us through Genesis 11. Genesis 1 through 11 is considered the prologue of the book of Genesis. Actually, 1 through 11 is roughly 2,000 years. And then we get to Abraham, which we're going to look at in Genesis 12. Genesis 12 to the rest of the book, Genesis 50, is about 280 to 300 years. 11 chapters on 2,000 years, 38 chapters on Abraham and his family. Abraham is a significant turning point in the story of redemption. His name is mentioned 72 times in the New Testament. Much of the apostles' teaching, especially the apostle Paul, he drills into to Abraham and his faith, and he calls, he links us as Christians to Abraham. And we saw how God traces the seed of the woman in, in the midst of this fall, in the midst of destruction, where Adam and Eve go from paradise to hell on earth. There's a promise. The seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent, the seed or offspring. And we see how the Bible, through genealogy, traces from Adam to Seth to Noah to Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob. And this continues all throughout the Bible to Jesus. The entire Bible is pointing to Jesus Christ. The entire Bible is pointing to Christmas. It, it starts in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman has finally come at the incarnation. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go to Genesis 12. 1 to 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth 
shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So let's, let's look at this for a moment. There's one command in this God gives Abraham. He calls him and he says, go from your country. And you can say into the land, but the, the, the command is really leave. Go, come out. And then he gives them five blessings. I'm gonna give you land. I'm gonna make you a great nation. I'm gonna bless you and make your name great. Now think about that one for a moment. What were they doing at Babel? They were trying to make themselves great. Let's make a name for ourselves. And Babel, as we talked about last week, they go down in human history as folly. But Abraham goes down in human history is the exact opposite. And we see God's promise right here. I, God, will make your name, Abraham, great. I will bless your friends and I'll curse your enemies. And in you, all the families of the world will be blessed. Abraham is living in Haran or Ur of the Chaldeans, whichever place you, you, you put them when, when you read, there's some disagreement on that. And, and God calls him out of that and says, I'm going to bless you. And through you, this, the whole world is going to be blessed. Thomas Schreiner says of, of these verses, Abraham was a new kind of Adam, representing a new beginning. We'll find a roll call of five curses in the book of Genesis up until this point in the story. So remember these curses. There was one in, in Genesis 3.14 and 3.17 and 4.11, 5.29 and 9.25. These are the curses, five of them. But when Abraham comes on the scene, he receives a five-fold blessing. The curses that descended upon the world through Adam would be reversed through Abraham and his family. This is the beginning of the gospel unfolding. When we use the term gospel as Christians, sometimes we can kind of shorten it. And we say, well, hey, Jesus Christ died for your sins. But the gospel goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And here with Abraham, we begin to see a lot more clearly what this gospel is going to entail. In fact, Galatians 3.8, the Apostle Paul says of this, of this verse that we're reading, he said, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's me and you, any non-Jew, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. All the nations shall be blessed through Abraham. And Paul says, that's the gospel. All right, let's, let's keep going. So God says to Abraham, he says, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. God is saying to Abraham, come out. God is calling Abraham. Go from your father's house. Well, why is that significant? Well, Abraham's father was an idolater. We see in Joshua 24 too. He did not worship the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, they served other gods. And God calls Abraham out of that. I've got something better for you. This is grace, this is all grace. God makes the first move. Abraham is called. He's called out of idolatry to a land that he doesn't even know where he's going. God says, I will show you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. God spoke to Abraham. God disturbed him. God called him out. That is always invariably the first step. Go right through the Bible and you will find it everywhere. Read it in the New Testament as well as the Old. Pick up any biography of any saint who has ever lived, anyone who has ever adorned the life of the church. God will disturb you and call you out of your life of idolatry. That's why all of us are are here in this room on a Sunday morning listening to the Bible. That's why I'm preaching the Bible when I used to think it was nothing but bigotry. God calls us out of our idolatry. The call on my life started when my wife Amy began to go to a Bible study with with some women and she would come home and she would say, hey, I'm I'm reading the Bible and, and I just thought it was silly. And I actually began reading the Bible because I wanted to prove her wrong. I said, I I better know what I'm trying to disprove. If I'm going to fight back against this this ideology, I want to know what I'm fighting against. And I began reading the Bible. And somewhere along those lines, God began calling me. And I think it was gradual. until one day I knew this, this life, that this call that I feel to become a Christian is different than living this way. There's something different. It's not just an added on top of this. This is, hey, this road is going a whole nother way. My life is gonna change. And if you're here and you believe in Christ, you've had something to that. It might not look like that, but God has called you out of idolatry. This is how he works. This is still how he works today. Many of you, at one point in your life, you're minding your own business, you're doing whatever, somebody invites you to church, for some strange reason, you say, yep, I'll go. And you might at first hear something, you're disturbed, you're like, I don't like what that preacher was saying. I don't like it, I don't like what he's saying. But over time, it's like a pebble in your shoe and it's just there and you can't, It's kind of bugging you, and a pebble grows into a rock. God is calling you. He's he's taking you 
as his own. We must recognize, too, that there's an impulse in every one of us that fights against this. We have an impulse in us that fights against the word of God. It's called our flesh. And maybe over the last four months, you've heard me say things, and you're like, I don't like that. I don't like it. But I would submit to you that it's the word of God, and that's how God works. He disturbs us. He disrupts us. He takes us from our idolatrous thinking, and he moves us in another direction. This is what he did with Abraham. And even if you were raised in a, in a Christian home, this happened to you. You weren't born a Christian. At one point, you became a Christian. Somewhere deep down, you knew. There's two paths here. The call of God and the call of the world. And up until now, we've seen Genesis 1 through 11. We've seen the death and destruction of the call of the world. We've seen it in Babel. We've seen it in the flood, and we saw it in the garden. It brings nothing but despair, destruction, consequence, and misery. That's the call of the world, and God is calling all of his people to another path. He's saying, come, I have something better for you. Even for Christians now, you may know him, you may have responded to that call, but he's still calling you, saying, I have a better way. God called Abraham to come out. This is what we would use in the Bible as repentance. This is the turning, turning from our ways and us being the sovereign in our life to God and to submitting and to saying, God, I can't do this. I can't do this. I, I've done it my way for, 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 for countless years, and I can't do it. I'm making a mess of my life. I want you as my king, as my sovereign. And praise God, he has his arm out for us, calling us, calling us in, just like he called Abraham. All right, as the, the narrative continues, Abraham is called, he responds, he obeys, he, he leaves. And God gives him the, this promise in Genesis 12, 7. I, I don't think I have it on the screen. But in Genesis 12, 7, he says, to your offspring, I will give this land. And that's that word, that offspring word we keep hearing. We, hear, we heard it in Genesis uh, 3, and we've heard it all throughout, that, that there's this offspring. Remember Lamech, when, when Noah was born, he's like, is he the one? Is Noah the one? Is he the offspring? Is he the one that's going to roll back the curse and take us out of this miserable existence with death and darkness? And of course, we know that, that Noah wasn't the one, but the theme is still continuing. And now Abraham's looking for this offspring, and God has promised him this, this offspring, this seed, this son. And we see in Genesis 15, Abraham is, is roughly 75 years old. You, you can check that. It, it, I might be off a few years, but roughly 75 and it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. 
And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So let's stop right there. Abraham is waiting. He heard God's call. He heard God's promise. And he's saying, how am I going to do this, God? Maybe Eleazar? Look at him. Well, is this how you're going to fulfill the promise? My servant? And we keep moving. And, and God says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look to the heaven, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's no accident that the man whom God calls to be a father of the multitudes is married to a barren woman. Sarah cannot have children. We will see that here in a minute. And God is calling this man Abram. He later changes his name to father of multitude, multitudes, Abraham. And God is calling him, and his wife is barren. She can't have children. It's no accident. This is an impossible circumstance, and, and this is how, when you read the Bible, our God works. He seemingly puts his children in impossible circumstances so only he can get the glory. We saw this at the Red Sea when he parts the Red Sea. He backs them up to the sea. All of Egypt is coming at God's people and they're like, we're, we're done, we're dead. He parts it. We see this with Gideon. He pairs down the army. And I'm sure you've seen this in your own life. Have you been in circumstances where God has backed you into a corner and you've thought, there's no way I'm getting where I think I'm getting. There's no way. I don't see it. It's not humanly possible. I can't even, if I go over every possible circumstance in my head, I do not see how we get from A to B. But many of you know that God finds a way. This is the God that spoke light into darkness. He puts his children in impossible circumstances so you and I don't get the glory. We can't claim the glory so he gets the glory. Because when we think it's us and we take the glory, that's like bad. Right? We can't handle it. It's not meant for us. It's meant for him. So I would ask, have you seen God work like this? Are you following him closely in a way where you're looking for him to work like this? Reading your Bible, 
constantly in prayer, just not, you know, hey, I, I can't do anything today, but are you talking to him? Are you talking to him as you go throughout your day? Are you listening? Are you wanting to hear from him in his word? Maybe even keeping a journal. Are you communing with God? Because when you are tuned into this, you're going to see him work in miraculous ways. And this is worship, relationship. It's not legalism. This is relationship. And we don't do it perfectly. Abraham turns 86, so he's given this promise when he's 75. So we have 11 years now elapse, and there's no, there's no child Him and Sarah are both thinking, we got to help God here. We got to make this happen. Sarah gets the idea while well, we, my, my maidservant, Hagar, she's not barren. Sleep with her. We'll get a son. And the promise of God will be fulfilled. And we all know, or maybe you don't, how that goes. It goes terribly, and it causes all sorts of heartache and consequence. And as we get to Genesis 17, the, the narrative, it, it's continuing, and they're still waiting. Now Abraham is 100 years old. This is 25 years after God said, you're going to have a son, you're going to have an offspring of the promised child. And Abraham, who knows what he's thinking, what's going to happen with this promised child. 25 years. He's already tried twice to do it on his own. What about Eleazar? How about Hagar? And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So God is saying, not Eleazar, not through Hagar, the son is going to come from you, Abraham, and Sarah. What does Abraham do here? Abraham says, Well, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So here we have Abraham saying, after he's already gone gone and done it on his own, God had made the promise, he's, oh, we got a workaround here. And now he's got Ishmael, his son, and God is saying, no, it's, uh, it's going to be through Sarah. And Abraham's like, what about Ishmael? Come on, he's my son. I love him. 
Why not Ishmael? And God is saying, no. Sarah will bear you a son. And you'll name him Isaac. And the promise is going to come through Isaac. Not Ishmael. So as the, the narrative goes, Isaac is finally born in Genesis 21. The child of the promise is finally here. They've waited 25 years. Isaac is here. Can you imagine for a moment the excitement? Like what is God, the, the potential and what is gonna happen with this child? What is God's program? He said he's gonna bless the nations. He's gonna bless us. What's going to happen with Isaac? Praise God, he's here. God keeps his promises. He fulfills his word. And now comes the utterly unpredictable part of the story. Genesis 22, 1-2, Isaac is finally here. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What? What is this? He's finally here. We don't know how old he is. He's probably maybe a teenager at this point, and Isaac is here, and now go kill him? Sacrifice him? You have to be thinking, what in the world is going on here? And what is Abraham thinking? Like, Lord, will you never stop putting me in these impossible circumstances? One after another, my back is against the wall. I can't, I want to follow you. I love you. I know you're good, but you're, you're asking me to do these things. Now you're asking me to sacrifice my son. And this is a, in a day and age where child sacrifice is rampant. This wouldn't have been that strange to Abraham. It would have been strange to him that this God was asking him to do it. So I would ask, you, what, what in your life feels impossible? Is it a fractured relationship, a marriage? Maybe it's your finances, health. And again, you might be thinking, I don't see how this can work. Just know that you serve a God and you're a child of a God who puts his children in these places so he can deliver and get the glory. So if you're in one of those situations and you've got something going on and you're like, I do not know how we're going to get out of this, pray, seek God, journal, watch, look. He will move. This is the God that we serve. He will move. Abraham, Genesis 22, 6 to 8, and Abraham took the wood 
of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So, when both, so they w- went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Imagine for a moment this scene. Parents, imagine for a moment this scene. The anguish of Abraham at this moment. Abraham has been called by by God. He's been visited by God. He knows this God. He knows he's good. He knows he's powerful. He's seen him destroy a city, Sodom and Gomorrah. He has his promised son, father and son, walking on a journey up a mountain. And we see here the promised son, Isaac, carrying his own wood for his own sacrifice. Just as Christ, walking up Calvary, carried his wooden cross for his own sacrifice. Can you imagine the anguish of Abraham at this point? When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid, on him, laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. When Abraham reached out of his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. So, so here we are. He's, he's at the place. Isaac is bound. And Abraham has a knife in his hand. Abraham is obeying God. And we know from the book of Hebrews, I, I don't have the scripture, but Hebrews 11, if you really want to know what Abraham was thinking, it's in Hebrews 11. And, and, and Abraham's reasoning in his mind, this God is a good God. This is the child of promise. He can raise him from the dead. That's what Abraham was thinking. I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to obey because this God is not an angry, not a, a, an evil God. He's a good God and he will raise him from the dead. I trust him. So let's keep, keep reading. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. When we read this, it's so hard for us to get our minds around what's happening here. 
The first thing that I would say is, is this is all to do with the child of the promise. God is never going to ask anyone to do this, nor did he intend for this. And later in the, in the Torah, God says, child sacrifice never even entered my mind. God hates child sacrifice. He, he abhors it. But this is pointing to something much bigger than what's happening here. We see no evidence of a struggle. As we read this text, we see Isaac walking up willingly. A father whose heart is broken. A father and son obeying. Isaac carrying the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain. God is giving us a picture of what is to come. As we've been talking about, the entire Bible is building to this point of the child of promise, the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. It sums up the entire word of God. Like I was saying earlier, it's all building to Christmas and it's all building to his second coming. But what this is showing us here is that this child of promise that is to come because Isaac is not the one that's going to roll back the curse. The promise just flows through him. But what God is showing us here is this child of promise is going to be sacrificed. He provided the sacrifice for Abraham and Isaac and he provides it for you and me. These indeed were real words When Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. But these words, I don't even think Abraham knew the strength of these words. God will provide the the burnt offering. God will provide the lamb. Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, was provided for me and for you. Jesus Christ is the true child of the promise. The promise just flowed through Noah and Seth and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. They were a picture of Christ to come, but Christ is the true, obedient child of the promise. And the whole purpose of his coming, his incarnation was leading to what we're seeing right now with Abraham and Isaac. In fact, Jesus says it like this right before he goes to the cross. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. There is a trend in Christianity, and I pray and I hope that you can see it when you see it. And that trend and and that that all, a lot of new writing, it, it's coming out and it's talking about, well, Jesus didn't die for the sins of the world on the cross. It was an example. And I would say from you, that is heretical nonsense. Jesus says it himself, for this very hour I came. The promised seed, the perfectly obedient one, to be the sacrifice for the people of God. 
Galatians says this about the offspring, this, this theme here. Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say into offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Friends, the entire Bible is pointing to Jesus. He says it himself. When he's arguing with the Pharisees, he's saying, you guys are, are, are reading the, the word and you're, you're, you don't understand. It's all about me. It's all pointing to me. All of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. The job that I had before, the job I have now, I was there for about 18 years, and, and about 10 of those was a, just a really kind of a, all of my chips in, upward climb, corporate ladder, make more money, get more influence. And I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with that. I do believe God calls his people to do that. But God was calling me to something different. And there became a point where I knew that he was calling me to something different and I had to say, I, I'm done. I, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not climbing the ladder. And, and people around me didn't quite understand it. But there was a period of time in that where I knew he was calling me to something new and calling me out of something old where I was in this middle ground and I would call it like a wilderness ground where I couldn't see where he was leading me but I only knew he was calling me out. There were many difficult times in that period of time in my life where I was tempted to turn back Tempted to go back to what felt familiar, to, to, to the money that I was making, to the affirmation I would get, to my identity. I was struggling with an identity. Who am I? If I'm not this, if I'm not the guy that's doing this, God's calling me here, who am I? And if you feel exposed and you feel like, well, I, I need, I don't know who I am. This is what he did with Abraham, and this is what he does with you. He calls you out, and he leads you. And you might not know exactly right now where he's leading you, and it might feel really exposed, uncomfortable, might be struggling with who you are because you're, okay, if I'm not that anymore and you're leading me here, then then who am I? But I would say this, it is exhilarating. Abraham's call was an exhilarating call. He left idolatry, he left the city, he left everything he knew, and God led him and he saw God work. Eugene Peterson says this of Abraham's call and Israel. He says, Abraham pioneered the great venture of living by faith, leaving what he knew for what he believed and expected in God. It was an invigorating existence, packed with meaning and taught with purpose. There was suffering and there was blessing, but most of all, there was vitality. They were alive at every level, 
Then it all disappeared into the swamp of slavery. Instead of living a free life under the Palestinian stars, listening to the voice of God, worshiping and praising, they were toiling under whips and slave masters commanded by the curses of cruel rulers, dehumanized in the impersonal machine of slavery. Peterson is contrasting the life of following God and the life of following the world in bondage. Many times when God led his people Israel out of slavery, he led them out of oppression, out of bondage, and they would be in the wilderness and they would say, well, at least we had food in Egypt. At least we had fish and melons and cucumbers and onions. What are you leading us out here to die, Lord? But they couldn't see and they never did see that God was leading them in to something, to the promised land, and they never saw it. They never saw it because they grumbled and they complained and they only looked back to Egypt and they said, I I don't care how bad it was in Egypt. I don't care that we had to make bricks and then make them without straw and that we were being whipped. I don't care that at least we had good food. At least we knew what to expect. At least we had security. But the call of God is something incredible entirely different. He's going to call us into places and we're not going to see where he's leading. But it is exhilarating. It is exciting. And we might not know where we're going, but we know the God who is leading us. Take the land. I have something better. That's what God's saying to Abraham. Take the land. Come out of where you were. Repent. Take the land, I have something better for you. Lloyd-Jones says this. The call of Abraham is something that we must understand if we really want to grasp what the Bible tells us regarding the possibilities confronting all of us at this moment. We are all aware of the state of the world. The godless life leads to misery, turmoil, and wretchedness and finally brings down the judgment of God. We've seen that, right? In Genesis 1 through 11, that is exactly what we have seen. But Abraham's story is something entirely different. Abraham is a man of faith. But the life following God is different. The question is, are we aware of the other possibility? And I would ask you, are you aware? Even as a Christian, there's another way you do not have to get sucked into the, to, to the world's ways and the, what, what we think we have to do. God is calling you. He's calling all of us. If you know him, he is speaking to you. God is announcing another possibility. Another type of life is possible to us in this world. A life given by God. A life in communion with God. A life under the blessing of God. Another life is possible. It's the good life. Jesus calls it the abundant life. Paul calls it the life which is truly life. Jesus says, when you lose all of that, you really gain it all. When you lose what you think you don't want to lose, you really gain it all. And I don't know what that is for each one of you this morning, but God is speaking to you, and you know, 
And you might have to wrestle with it. It might be disrupting you in some way, but wrestle with it. Pray, read, journal. A life following God is exhilarating. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look at the life of Abraham, and it was not a perfect life. He made a lot of mistakes. He sinned. He had his faith questioned, but Lord, in your word, he goes down as a man of faith. And your word says that we are children of Abraham. If we believe, we are like him. And Lord, I just pray that we, as a church, as people of God, can grab hold of that inheritance, even now. Even now, even though that, Lord, what is to come is the true promise, the new heavens and the new earth. But even now, we can grab hold of eternal life and the life that you're calling us to live. And I do pray that for everyone in here. Lord, help us to be a people who repent, who, who turn from our ways and the world's ways and stop arguing with you and stop, when we hear your word, thinking it says something else and trying to make it say something else. Help us to just be a people who submit. That's where we're happiest. That's where we find joy. Pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Vintage Faith Podcast. At Vintage Faith, our vision is to help people who are far from God to become totally devoted followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast brought you closer to God. For more information, check us out at vintagefaithcicero.com.